Hello, and welcome to Stride and Saunter, episode 49. I'm Kip Clark, and again in the studio with me, we have Kyle Aronson. How's it going? Thanks for having me again, Kip. It's going well. Happy to have you back. So this time, again, in a film avenue, we're going to be talking about one of my recent favorites that I saw fall of 2014, Interstellar, which was directed by Christopher Nolan, and I believe his brother helped work on it as well. I really loved it. I will get that out in the open and proudly display my bias because I think it's important to share when discussing something like this. But I would also say that it really impacted me for a number of reasons, but that I also watched it with a loved one who I hadn't seen in a while back in November when it came out. And I think sitting there with her and sharing that experience was very visceral for me. So I will also say, as we continue into this episode, Kyle and I aren't going to spoil things at first. We're going to have a discussion generally about the film and thoughts we had, but at a certain point, we are going to spoil it. So if you haven't seen the film yet, you can listen for a bit, but also we would urge you to go and watch the film before listening to the latter half or so of the episode. I guess my first question to you would be, what were your first impressions after watching it? When you left the theater after two and a half hours, what were you feeling? What? That was my feeling. I just didn't really know what I had seen yet, and I didn't know how to process it, which I think is how I feel after a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies. I was worried going in that I was going to feel bored by the end of it, and that it was going to feel tedious and long, and I really didn't feel that at all, despite it being, I think, a two-hour and 45-minute movie. But I didn't feel bored. I just got to the end of it, and I was like, what just happened? Like, that overwhelmed me, but at the same time, it confused me, and I didn't really know if I liked it, or I didn't know if I wasted my time. It was a lot of different things, and I think it took me a long time to process. I thought there was a lot of really great stuff in there. But at the same time, I would be curious to hear what really moved you about this film and what was so particular, what would you take from that movie that other people might not? That's a great question. I think leads really well into some of my general thoughts swirling around about it. First of all, I remember watching the trailer that got me excited for the film. And I think that's very typical in our day and age to have a really spectacular trailer with a lot of very fast cuts. Well, I think one thing that you, about the trailer, is Christopher Nolan just rides his own hype train nowadays. Whatever movie is coming out, I remember going to see The Dark Knight Rises the summer of 2012 when it came out, and it was the most hyped movie, I think, for me at least, you know, because I had seen The Dark Knight in high school and absolutely loved it. I probably watched it 25 times over the course of a year. I would just throw it on when I was riding the bus to school or something like that, and I went to see The Dark Knight Rises, and I was disappointed by that. But the same thing happened with Interstellar, where a year in advance, you got the news that McConaughey was going to be in it, and Anne Hathaway, and Jessica Chastain, and it was about space, and it was going to be crazy and beautiful, and it was Christopher Nolan, and it was going to be all these insane ideas, and it was going to have amazing sound, and Hans Zimmer. It reaches a point of almost being too much, and being a little bit unfair for the movie. So I saw these trailers, as you said, the hype train. I got very, very excited. Of course, I'm a big fan of a lot of Christopher Nolan films. I think they work very well with the cerebral, but I would argue the emotional as well. Some of the critics that we read that we will link to in this episode talked about how Nolan works mostly with the head, and in their opinions, he's a very cold and calculating director and doesn't play much with emotions, which I would disagree with. So I went into this film, which I was very excited to see, Hans Zimmer, who of course has a very particular style, and as you've said to me before the episode, composes in a very specific way that is very frequently copied and pasted into different films, which I think is a fair criticism, wrote, in my opinion, a very moving and powerful score 
that I think worked really well. It was admittedly loud at points and hard to hear certain dialogue. I think that worked well. I think the visuals of the film were very impressive, and I loved the way the black hole, which was shown at one point in the film, was depicted. There was a scene on a planet with a lot of water. It was entirely covered in water, and there were very large waves. I thought that was impressive visually, and I personally think the acting was really well done. I was moved to tears at a number of points, both because of the acting, but also the processing of how I would feel in those circumstances that the characters were experiencing. And I remember thinking how powerfully I was affected. I think I cried four or five times throughout the film. There were just very high moments. And I don't tend to cry a lot, which I'm not ashamed of. I think crying is important. I think people should cry. But not every movie will move me to tears. Even the saddest of films, I just think there was a lot of raw emotion that was thrown into the film that I think no one worked really well with. And I also really enjoyed the hero's journey. I think the protagonist, Cooper, played by McConaughey, goes through a lot and experiences things that were very interesting to me. And I enjoyed that experience for sure. But I will say, seeing it with someone that I really care about certainly impacted me. And I think we often have nostalgic or emotionally biased memories of experiences we've had, whether the art or the film in this case was actually well done. So when I left the theater, I was thrilled. And I had a lot of questions too. That was one thing that I really enjoyed. Often I've watched films with my parents or other people, and we'll talk about the film afterwards, favorite scenes, favorite characters. And I had a lot to say, I had a lot of questions. And I think partially because of some of the plot holes in the film, which we will get to later, but I really enjoyed that, and I'd be curious to bring it back to you, were there certain aspects of the film, be it sound design, visuals, acting, etc., that really got to you in particular? Well, of course he has amazing shots in the sense of what he's shooting. The locations are amazing. A lot of it, I can't tell the difference sometimes between what's CGE and what's a real place that they're actually shooting, or is this a set, or a whole bunch of different things. For example, when they go to Matt Damon's planet, that planet just looks crazy. It looks so unique, and just who would ever come up with that? One thing that's very interesting about Christopher Nolan is that while he shoots very, very beautiful things in pretty much all of his movies, if you think about Inception, has a lot of really great scenes like the avalanche scene and a lot of really beautiful things to look at, but he's not, in my opinion, necessarily a beautiful director. If you go back and you watch some of his older films, particularly his first three, I would say, which were following Insomnia and Memento, if I'm getting those right, they deal a lot more with everyday humans and their psychology rather than these incredible sci-fi marvels. So rather than shooting very, very impressive physical feats, such as these planets that he's creating, he's just shooting what's more similar to everyday life. And a lot of people would go back and watch those and say, it's a good movie, but it doesn't look as amazing as Interstellar does, or as Inception does, or perhaps the Batman movies do. And it's simply, to me, it seems that he's a director who really benefits from what he's shooting, rather than the way that he films it. Two things I would say in response. One, you talk about your inability to tell sometimes between artificially generated imagery and actual locations, and I think that's a sign personally of a good editor. And I've heard a lot from some of the critics we read that they don't believe he's so much a good director as a good editor. And I'd be curious to hear what you think about that. I think some people would definitely contest that, considering most of his movies are at least two and a half hours long, which can be somewhat problematic and 
can have a tough time relating to large audiences. But I usually don't feel when I'm watching his movies, I don't feel bored in any way or I don't feel like they are too long. So I would definitely agree that I think he is a very good editor. I think his movies are paced very well. They don't feel tedious. They don't feel slow. So I think that's a good point that you bring up. And another point that to me was really important about the movie, obviously it plays with space travel and astronomy and other ideas of scientific inquiry some of which most scientists haven't figured out yet, like black holes. And there's a great quote from Neil deGrasse Tyson who said that he really enjoyed the film because, quote, when you approach a black hole, the black hole is distorting space in its vicinity. And this was captured beautifully. I enjoyed watching the surrounding imagery get distorted. It's a sophisticated ray tracing problem. And if you're a movie producer and you can get it right, then why not, end quote. And he said he was reminded of 2001, A Space Odyssey. And I think it is interesting, and there were other quotations in the articles that we read about distortion of facts, and that if you get the facts right first, as Mark Twain once said, then you can play with distorting them and working out how you actually want to play with that. And Nolan did a really good job of working with scientific minds to actually fact check and make sure that what he was doing was relatively accurate, at least to the best of his ability. And so he worked with a Caltech physicist or an astrophysicist named Kip Thorne, who actually wrote an accompanying book to describe a lot of the details of the film. And Tyson found that appealing and engaging as well and gave it his support and backing because he found it to be scientifically accurate but also readable. And I think that was one of my favorite things about this film and that I think no one does frequently. He approaches big and grand topics that might seem too grandiose or too hard to digest for the average viewer. But my impression after leaving the film was that I did understand some of the science a little bit better, at least on a visual scale. Obviously, I'm not an astrophysicist, but I enjoyed the visual depiction of some of these concepts. And of course, with things like black holes, no one knows what's on the other side. The gravity is intense and destructive and there's this theory about spaghettification that if someone goes through a black hole, the gravity is so strong that it basically warps time and that your body is split atom by atom and just torn apart and that it would take centuries for that entire process to happen and be incredibly painful. Of course, in this film, I won't spoil what happens when characters go through the black hole, but it's not spaghettification. And I think it was just very interesting to see how Nolan played with the what-ifs of that scenario. So at this point in the episode, we are going to lift the spoiler ban and talk about some of the things in the film that happened because there were some very interesting details. Nolan bit off a lot in the sense that he approached a lot of concepts and engaged a lot of various areas. One thing that was sort of problematic for me that one reviewer said is that Murph, the daughter, and Cooper, Matthew McConaughey's character, spend basically the entire movie trying to reunite with one another. He has to begrudgingly leave to try and save Earth, and when they finally do get back together, and he hasn't aged very much at all, and she's an old woman, they spend about two minutes together at the end of the film and then part ways, and a lot of people were very critical of that. Also, the idea that video diaries can be sent from Earth to McConaughey's spaceship but that he can't send them back, he can only receive them. That's a bit problematic. And one final plot hole that I found very funny, there's a man who waits in the spaceship when McConaughey and the others go to the water planet, and he's waiting there for 23 years because they were there for seven minutes, and because of gravity's effect on that planet, time went more slowly for them than the man in the spaceship. So he'd aged 23 years by the time they got back, and he's fine. Apparently he did some you know, math homework basically to simplify it and spent some time in the sleeping chamber. But a lot of reviewers said, why hasn't he gone insane? He's been alone for 23 years on a spacecraft. What's wrong with that? He wouldn't be sane. 
Well, the science works when they need the science to work for the plot in that sense, which I think is, it's interesting that Neil deGrasse Tyson's takeaway from this film is they did a really good job depicting black holes. They did a great job depicting tides and how large tides could be. But at the same time, you're watching characters and you're watching characters in a story. And that's ultimately what this film boils down to. Otherwise, you would be watching a documentary. So I think it is important to think about those things and to think, well, why did he make those choices? Or why did he make a character who has to sit in a spaceship alone for 23 years not go insane? How does that work? I think he struggles with a lot of things because he is so big in his ideas and it's almost too grand that he can't really keep it all together after a certain point and it makes it very very difficult that was one thing that i took away from inception as well i was much younger when i watched it because i think it came out in 2008 and I remember seeing that final image of the totem spinning and just feeling so messed up mentally, just like, what what happened to this character? But after watching Interstellar and approaching it in a very different way than I approached Inception at the time, I walked away with there's all these holes and there's all these mistakes that he's made because he's almost trying to put too much into his film rather than keeping it simple and keeping it character and story based rather than based on where these people are going and what's happening to this world because what audiences really resonate with or at least what I really resonate with is what a character is going through which is why I think my favorite part of the film is when Matthew McConaughey and Anne Hathaway get back after they were on the water planet and it's been 23 years. And at least for me, I don't really think about that other guy. I'm like, wow, that's really tough. But then I watch McConaughey watch all these videos and he's just crying because his daughter is growing up before his eyes and he's missed everything. That was one of the best emotional beats in the film for me. I completely agree. That was one of my favorite parts of the film. That was when I started crying because you just feel so sad for McConaughey and you realize that he's missed the childhood of his child and he hasn't been there to raise her. He hasn't even been there to witness what she's been going through. And then at the end of the film, he's lying in this bed and his child, his offspring, is more than twice his age. And it's just such a strange feeling. And I think no parent would ever want to feel that, that they've somehow outlived their child in a way. For me, another really powerful emotional beat was when Brand, played by Michael Caine, he's an astrophysicist back on Earth, admits to Murph with his dying breath, she's Matthew McConaughey's daughter, that he basically sent her father on a wild goose chase, that plan A or plan B of how to save Earth from its predicament of food shortage and other things wasn't going to work, that he had no prediction of success and he'd worked out the mathematical equation long ago and had just sent them out there and didn't have any idea what was going to happen. And I remember just my heart dropped. I felt so bad for Murph for figuring that out, that she's lost her dad, not only to a righteous cause, but a hopeless cause in a lot of ways, because it's not going to pan out according to Michael Caine's character, but also for poor McConaughey, who has no idea what's going on back at Earth and frankly believes that he can help people. And I think that's a very relatable idea, that people sometimes do monstrous things to protect the ones they love from the truth. And so that was really relatable to me. And I think another idea that really resonated with me that I'd be curious to hear your input on is just the sense of isolation. 
that characters die in the film, that more and more McConaughey is isolated and on his own, has to act independently, and also that Matt Damon's character attacks him at one point. He's been alone on that planet for a long time and has lost all hope and tries to kill McConaughey in order to escape on his own. He doesn't care about anyone else anymore. And you see McConaughey lying there struggling for breath as his oxygen tank depletes and he's about to suffocate and die. And I felt for him. I felt a number of emotions, be it pity, anger at Matt Damon, sadness, and also this sense of urgency that Earth is currently plummeting into despair and that McConaughey is one of the last sources of hope to save it. But the sense of isolation really, really resonated with me, and I'd love to hear what you thought about that idea of him alone. So going off of what you said about the Matt Damon sequence where they go to Matt Damon's planet, that was the most confusing part of the film for me. I agree. In that I didn't understand why Matt Damon needed to lie the entire time to Matthew McConaughey. It seems very, very simple if McConaughey shows up and Matt Damon just says, listen, I just needed to signal you guys here. There's nothing here. I didn't want to be left here alone. I'm sorry that you wasted your fuel, but I wanted to get home too. And with the way that they've built up these characters over time, McConaughey and Hathaway are not vindictive people. They are not trying to avenge any wrong done to them. They wouldn't say, okay, well, you screwed us over, so we're going to leave you on this planet to die now. That point of the film was contentious for me, in that it didn't make sense as to why this character was doing what he was doing, especially if he had so much time to think it over. I guess you could also make the argument that he did this because there had been so much time, and he just was so desperate to get out of his situation. But one thing in regards to isolation is McConaughey isn't really ever alone until the very end of the film. That's a fair point. He's always with other scientists. He's usually on the plane. He's isolated from his family. He's isolated from his home. But he's not completely isolated from people. And he also has all of those Skype conversations with his son, too. And I imagine with people back home, I guess Skype is probably not what they were using. But a video chat. And right, a video right. chat, yeah. And so he isn't deprived of human connections in the same way the other scientists when they get back from the water planet was. The only time he's completely deprived of those things and you see him struggle with that is when he falls into the black hole and then goes into this alternate dimension where he's behind the bookshelf and the only reason he's struggling is because he has this information. He's struggling with his aloneness because he can't transfer his knowledge to anyone but he's not struggling with being alone for the sake of emotionality. Right. You're making a very nuanced point about it, and you're absolutely correct that he is struggling with those things for different reasons that perhaps I initially interpret. I'm glad you bring up the bookshelf scene that he's desperately trying to contact his daughter, and you don't know if he's going to succeed in this alternate dimension trying to contact her. And the music that played at that point and his desperation was another moment that really evoked a lot of emotion in me and caused me to cry again. I also really liked a lot of depictions of truth in the film, that we've already talked about scientific truth, and as another point that I'd like to make on the water planet, because of its proximity to the black hole, the waves, according to scientists, would have been as large as they were, you know, plenty of stories high. And I think that was really interesting, that there was a reason these waves were gigantic, not simply for the sake of terror for the characters, but because of actual scientific logic. And I also really liked looking back at Earth. There are plenty of moments in the film or scenes that pan back to Earth and what's going on there. 
and people are growing increasingly tense and angry and fights break out. And to me, that felt very real because there's a sense of panic. It's not simply that some scientists are aware of the planet's imminent destruction, but that people are. And I think that was, in a very odd way, reassuring, seeing the general public riot and destroy and set fire to cornfields is relatable in the sense that people panic and people feel very uncomfortable with things. And I think it's almost ironic how much they panicked in comparison to the space travelers who were voyaging off into the unknown and have every reason to panic, but were pretty stable about all of it, I think, in a lot of ways, except for, of course, Matt Damon's character. I'd be curious to hear what you think about that irony. Well, just from us having this conversation, I think that the reason is because the characters that we're following, Cooper and his daughter, they are trying to achieve a goal. Whereas everyone else is struggling for survival on Earth, which is a doomed planet. Mm -hmm. So you're fighting one another. But the scientists of the film are trying to save Earth, or at least create an alternate solution. So rather than trying to be on top in a dying world, you're trying to be equal in a world that can survive. So I think it preserves their sanity in that way, in that if you actually have something that you can look towards, something that might be attainable, you're driven by this goal. And this goal, especially in film, is going to consume you. Because while it's interesting to watch people fall apart, you also have to watch people progress forward. So making that progression, especially in this type of movie where the whole thing is based on sending someone out into space to try and find something and try and find a better solution, they're going to be actively doing things rather than just being affected by the environment that's around them because they've taken it upon themselves to make these changes and to present an opportunity of preserving the life and mankind. I agree, and that's a very sound explanation of why all those things are happening. And I think the devotion to plot, to me, is why things keep moving forward, despite some of the plot holes we've mentioned. Of course, other plot holes that are now occurring to me, when McConaughey arrives at NASA's sort of underground operation, they choose him as a pilot as though they hadn't already had one ready to go, even though they had this plan to send astronauts out and find other habitable planets. And also, there's a robot that attends throughout the film that I personally found to be hilarious and had a lot of great quips about probabilities and their chances for survival and other sardonic statements that I found very well written and very well delivered. And plenty of critics have said, well, why couldn't robots have been sent to accomplish all of these tasks? And of course, that's a valid criticism. But again, you have to suspend your disbelief and you have to keep in mind that as a plot, a movie has to keep moving forward. It can't always deal with all aspects of reality because frankly viewers might get bored there are things that prohibit action from taking place because logic might negate that or make it impossible so all in all i think it was one of my favorite films because despite the plot holes action happens emotion is evoked it is thought-provoking in a lot of ways and i think the plot was legitimately interesting so personally i would highly recommend it i know it's a longer film i'd be curious as a film major and a film aficionado if you would recommend it to people Absolutely. I definitely think that everyone should see it if they have the opportunity to sit down and watch what is a very long film. But you mentioned the plot holes. I think if you go back and it's just kind of what you expect at this point with Christopher Nolan, where you walk into a Christopher Nolan movie and you expect to see really big things, it's going to be really loud, and the plot's going to have some mistakes, and it's going to feel a little bit patchy. But that's not what you're watching it for. You're watching it for the spectacle, you're watching it for the action, you're watching it for the fun and for him trying 
to grip you emotionally and there are going to be some mistakes i think that's just the way it is which is one of the problems with the dark knight rises the dark knight which i loved it was my favorite film for a long long time it was just so much fun also in retrospect has a lot of problems inception has a lot of problems but it's just what you have to expect when you walk into a certain film and it's the same with all directors nowadays you know if you go to a coen brothers movie you have to get used to these crazy supporting characters if you see a paul thomas anderson movie it's going to be slow and you're not going to be really sure what's going on when it comes to the story if you go to a bennett miller film it's going to be really bleak and it's also going to be incredibly tedious there's something to take away from all of these directors, and there's something to take away from every movie that you see. And there's a lot to take away from Interstellar and just any other Christopher Nolan movie as well. Certainly. I know some of the critics we read argued that he has begun to use mystery as a gimmick, that in a lot of his films there's something that doesn't quite fit, and that over the course of the film, or maybe in a sudden moment of revelation, it will be explained. And while I agree that he has begun to use it a bit heavy-handedly, I didn't think it was poorly used in this film. I didn't know what Murph was seeing behind her bookshelf that was contacting her. I didn't know that it was going to be her father from another dimension. Maybe it was obvious to some people, but like I said before, suspension of disbelief allowed me to reach that point in the film in a very ignorant way, which made it more enjoyable because I wasn't thinking ahead and trying to outpace Nolan as a director, and I think that's part of it, that you do have to go in with skepticism to a degree, and as we said in an earlier episode, the willingness to emotionally invest in something that someone spent a lot of time on, but you can't be overly critical or overly aware. What do you think of that idea? Well, in regards to the scene that you were talking about, you know, she has this ghost when she's a child, and then it turns out that the ghost is her father and her father is solving these problems for her. I took issue with that only because it was just so hard to see how that would stack up and how just by like pushing stuff off of a bookshelf could really make sense or how they could make that work. But you do have to suspend your disbelief when you go into it and that's part of enjoying it. It's okay afterwards to come out and think, well, like what didn't I like about this movie or what were the problems that I found in it? But it's definitely better to just go in and just try and enjoy it as much as possible, which I'm very glad to hear that you were able to do so when you were watching it. If we have time, I'd be interested in also getting back to the point you brought up that this was a more enjoyable experience because you were sitting with someone you cared about deeply. And do you think that is objective of every film that you watch, that if you're watching it with someone who you care about, you're going to enjoy yourself more? Do you think that because you're with that person beforehand and you might be happier, it preps you to have a more enjoyable experience regardless of the movie? Just your thoughts. It's a very good question, and I think it will be one of the closing moments of this episode. I definitely think it had an impact on the film, as I already said, but I don't think I would want a loved one or even any particular person I'm close with to watch every film with me. I think the reason this film resonated so much was because it touched on themes of love and human connection in ways that reminded me of the person with whom I was watching the film. So I felt I was not only watching it and she was watching it beside me, but that we were very much watching it together. And I have had other experiences with films where I don't feel like I need another person with me or it doesn't seem to necessitate discussion or it's a simpler film in some ways so I don't think she and I or other loved ones and myself would get the same out of other film experiences and frankly I don't think I always need other people with me I've enjoyed plenty of films alone I think we have a culture that emphasizes watching things together but I don't mind watching something alone and then discussing it with someone afterwards what do you think 
I tend to get too sucked into my own head, I think. I don't mind watching movies alone. I don't mind watching them with a lot of people. It honestly depends on the movie sometimes. I remember watching a lot of comedies that I would watch by myself or I would watch in a smaller group and they just weren't as funny because you were sitting, it wasn't camaraderie, it wasn't an event. And one thing that really helps, I think, when you're watching comedies is someone laughs first and then you feel more comfortable laughing That's and you feel point. comfortable in that situation. But when it comes to the darker, more depressing, dramatic films, it tends to not really matter usually who you're watching it with or if you're watching it with a lot of people or no people or one other person. But I do think the most important thing is that you're focused on the film. It's very difficult to watch it and have a conversation with someone because you really have to, if you want to suspend your disbelief, you have to commit yourself to what you're watching completely. And I think it's amazing that you had that emotional experience and you were able to have this, I'm watching this film and it relates so much to the person who I'm sitting with that it makes this film even better. It's important, I think, to establish a baseline of committing yourself to the film. And if you can get more than that out of it, then all props to you. That sounds wonderful. So those are some of our thoughts on Interstellar. Of course, we would love to hear from you as an audience. We want this to be a conversation among, not simply a conversation between. For those of you who haven't seen the film and hopefully only listened to the first 10 or so minutes of this episode, are you convinced to now maybe try watching it? Also, if you haven't seen the film yet and you do have the opportunity to do so, watch it on the biggest screen you can possibly see it on and watch it with the loudest speakers you can possibly see it on. Don't hurt your earbuds in any way. But if you can find a projector and some good speakers rather than just watching it on a small television or your computer, it's going to be so much more beneficial to your viewing experience. I agree. I would absolutely encourage people to do exactly what Kyle just said. And if you have seen it, what did you think of the film? Did the plot holes bother you? Did you even notice the plot holes? We would love to hear your comments and reviews and thoughts both on the film and on this conversation. So if you would like to contact us, our Twitter is at Stride N Saunter. Our Facebook account is Stride and Saunter. You can email us, strideandsaunter at gmail.com. And we would love for you to visit our website, which is strideandsaunter.com and leave us a comment, and of course, check out other episodes. So Kyle, as always, it's great to have a guest, and thank you for coming on again. Yeah, I hope to come as many times as possible. We would, of course, love to have you back. And as always, we thank all of you for listening, and from thought to word and voice to ear, this is Kip Clark, signing off.